Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and while you're finding that chapter, I want to tell you a story. Once upon a time, every good story starts with that. Once upon a time, a group of birds were talking together. And these birds had just landed after a long flight. They'd taken a drink of water from a local lake, and a bunch of them were now perched on a handrail of an old dock watching the sun go down, and they started talking. Because in my story, birds can talk. One of the younger birds asked a question, Why am I here? That's a pretty big question for a little bird. An older, uh, middle-aged bird answered truthfully, Because the Maker put you here. The young bird asked, Who is the Maker? Now, the middle-aged bird hadn't really thought about that. All birds simply knew that they had a maker. And now the other birds were looking on, wondering how the middle-aged bird was going to answer this tough theological question. And they were cheeping some whispers amongst themselves. And it wasn't easy for the middle-aged bird. After all, there's a reason when humans say someone is a bird brain that that's an insult. But after thinking for a moment, the middle-aged bird said, the maker is the one who made us teaches us to fly, and how to fly together. And of course, the young bird was just getting warmed up. He's very curious, and he asked another question. Does the maker love us? Well, now another middle-aged bird had to chime in in his sing-song voice. He was indignant. Well, of course the maker loves us. What kind of question is that? Why would you even ask that? The young bird was a little embarrassed. But he asked another question in answer to the bird's question. I was just wondering if the maker loves us. Because today when we were flying, my friend flying next to me couldn't fly anymore. And he dropped out of the sky. And I saw him lying on the ground. Did the maker love him? Well, now all the birds started arguing Uh, to a passerby. It just sounded like a chirp fest, but this was actually a deep, lively theological discussion. Some of them peeped that the little bird deserved to fall from the sky since it must have done something to displease the maker. Others cheeped unhelpfully. It's just one of those things, which really meant nothing. Still others said the little bird just didn't trust the maker enough so the maker couldn't help him. Well, none of those answers were easing the young bird's worries. Now he was afraid he might be the next one to go down. He didn't know what to think of the maker. Now, what these little birds were really discussing, they were debating the issue of the sovereignty of God. The question of just how involved is God in everything? When the coronavirus crisis came upon us, we continued walking through John's gospel narrative of the death and the resurrection of Christ. The best place to be is at the cross and at the empty tomb of Jesus. But now as this crisis lingers on, and we as a church have not met in person for six Sundays now, I wanted to just take a few messages and turn our thinking to the nature of God And so I'm going to do three messages on the topic of our big God, our big God. This morning, I want to address the sovereignty of God. This evening, we'll address the providence of God. And then next Sunday morning, I want to address a, we'll do a test case 
on a tragic situation, we'll ask the question, what about babies who die? And so this morning, we'll look at the sovereignty of God, and we're going to use a home base text, very familiar passage, Romans 8, verse 28. Follow along with me as I read this very classic text, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is an interesting verse because this is quoted even by non-Christians. They unknowingly quote it or, or at least loosely cite it. In fact, right now, there are yard signs everywhere saying everything will be all right. Where does that come from? That's a loose quote of Romans 8.28. Even non-Christians may at some level attempt to find some comfort that all things work together. Clearly, Romans 8.28 is teaching that God has a plan in which all things which happen somehow coalesce into something that's good. Paul offers no explanation as to how that happens, nor does he apologize for not explaining. But this verse is asserting the sovereignty of God. But there's a surprise. This verse has a twist to it. It has a surprise to it. It has a bombshell to it. And I'm going to save that more toward the end of our time together this morning. For now, we've established our home base in Romans 8, in which God has declared that there is a plan in which all things turn out okay. Now, I want to have us think together about the sovereignty of God as presented in Scripture. And as you might expect, this means we need to consider many other passages. So I'm going to suggest that you just make note of those passages. I won't have time to turn to all of them. The sovereignty of God is a big topic. It's lofty, and we don't want to always make the sovereignty of God about me. But because we have limited time today, I want to talk about how the sovereignty of God relates to you, relates to me, relates to us. The fact is we do need to understand how sovereignty relates to ourselves because it really determines how we think about God. And how we think about God then determines our peace, our contentment, and our trust. And so to keep this as simple as possible, as understandable as possible, I want to just give you three truths about the sovereignty of God which relate to how he interacts with us, with you. And my hope and really my goal this morning is for you to find solace and comfort in our big God. Now, we need to lay some foundational work here first before we get to those three truths. We need to pour a little concrete upon which to place those truths. So we'll get to those three truths in a moment, but let's pour some concrete first. Let's let's put a foundation down. What is the sovereignty of God? Well, let me give you a couple of definitions, two similar definitions by two great men. The first definition is by John Piper. Here's his definition. Quote, the sovereignty of God is God's right and power to do all he decides to do. That's a good definition. God's right and power to do all he decides to do. I'll give you a second definition, a a more technical definition by theologian John Feinberg. John Feinberg says this, that the sovereignty of God is, quote, God's power of absolute self-determination. It's God's power of absolute self-determination. Now, you've noticed that there's another word that gets thrown in very closely with Sovereignty, and that is the word power. The sovereignty of God is closely related to the omnipotence of God, the all-powerful nature of God. Omnipotence 
tells us how much power God has, all of it. And sovereignty tells us how God uses his power. This is very important because God could possess all powers possible and yet only exercise his powers once in a while. Or maybe he exercises his power over most things, but not everything. Maybe he doesn't exercise his power over human free will or over natural disaster. Maybe there's a few things that are hands off for God. Or maybe God has all power, but just doesn't intervene at all. And just lets nature take take its course. Self-determination is something that we possess as well. Humans have self-determination. We made a self-determined choice to rebel against God. But the self-determination of humans is very different than the self-determination of God. The self-determination of humans is limited in that your decisions are influenced. They're influenced by factors other than your own nature. We're influenced by other variables, and most of them aren't good. We're influenced by temptation, by greed, by selfishness, by lust. All kinds of things influence us to make bad decisions. But God's self-determination is absolute in that all of God's choices, all of his actions are based solely on his own character, his own purposes, his own nature, his own will. And so if God's sovereignty is absolute, then it necessarily follows that God alone is the total and complete authority over every action, every person, every outcome. It must be. There's no other option. The sovereignty of God is a biblical fact. And frankly, if you don't like it, then you've created an idol, a version of God who doesn't exist. Can I put it this way? The sovereignty of God is the ink on which the Bible is printed. The sovereignty of God is the paper upon which the Bible is printed. The sovereignty of God is every period, every comma, every paragraph, every exclamation point. And in fact, the sovereignty of God is every white space between the paragraphs, between the chapters that are places where God does not explain himself because he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. Why would God obligate himself to explain everything to us? We couldn't understand it if he did. Now, contrary to the biblical view of the sovereignty of God is what some call the open view of God, sometimes called open theism. The open view of God or open theism says that God's overarching quality is not sovereignty, but love. And we would agree that God is love, but they would say that in love, God has chosen. You ready for this? God has chosen to not know everything that's going to happen to give us free will instead. Now, probably most of you watching this are saying, oh, nobody would believe that. I would say most of American evangelicalism at least defaults unknowingly to being open theists because they treat God as if he's not in full control. Open theism says that God does his best to make good things happen and he's really, really good at reacting graciously and kindly and in love when bad things happen. But ultimately, he's chosen not to know all the bad things that are going to happen and therefore he won't prevent them. This is a very heretical attempt to explain why bad things happen in the world. And what it basically does is it denigrates God to the level of a demigod or a semi-god. So how overarching is the sovereignty of God? Well, simply put, 
The sovereignty of God is all-encompassing. Ephesians 1, verse 11, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. In Job 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Did you notice how God works in all things? According to the counsel of His will, all that He pleases, according to His purposes. I don't know about you, but that seems to be pretty much everything. The sovereignty of God is all-encompassing. Everything which happens is according to His plan. But I want to try and narrow this down to make this very practical for you, and I want to just talk about three simple truths which relate to how God's sovereignty interacts with us. So, truth number one. God has provided your life and supplies everything. Let me repeat that. God has provided your life and supplies everything. Let's talk about the fact that God has provided your life. The Bible uses a metaphor for mankind numerous times. It's a simple picture of a man or a woman being a piece of clay. Remember having Play-Doh as a child and that feeling of sovereign, omnipotent power when you made something that didn't turn out right? What did you do? You just squished it and you started over. You didn't say, well, this clay thing that I made has rights. How dare I decide what to do what I want with it? My Play-Doh has free will. You never said that. You didn't give it a second thought. You just squished it, stuck it back in the jar, started over. The picture of humanity as clay reminds us to have a proper perspective because, as a matter of fact, God made the first man out of what? Dirt. Clay. We actually are made of clay. Job beseeched God to go easy on him in his time of suffering. And he reminded God, as it were, Job 10, verse 9, he said, remember that you have made me like clay. And will you return me to the dust? Will you take me, the piece of clay, and just make me dust again? Elihu, one of Job's friends, tried to relate to Job. He said in Job 33, 6, Behold, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. In Isaiah 29, God rebukes a rebellious Jerusalem for their secret sins, thinking that they would never be found out by God. And God condemned them for getting the spiritual cart before the horse, so to speak. Isaiah 29, 16, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker? He did not make me or the thing formed of him who formed it. He has no understanding. God is reminding them that he made them and how dare the clay say there is no potter. In contrast, Isaiah portrays the loving submission of the faithful, the humble attitude of those who delight in the Lord. Isaiah 64, 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. And as a matter of fact, the clay has no right to accuse God or to complain. In Romans 9, Paul was answering questions concerning whether or not God made some people to be saved and other people to not be saved. He said in Romans 9, beginning in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? 
Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? God has the right to do with his clay as he pleases. Isaiah described God's coming judgment on wicked kings in Isaiah 41.25 and he describes God using a human instrument, quote, to trample on rulers as on mortar as the potter treads the clay. See, once again, the picture of squishing your Play-Doh when you don't like the way something turns out. So before we go around talking about our rights, and before we go around rejecting the potter who made the clay, remember that you are a little piece of clay, as Elihu said, pinched off and made into you. You are here because God decided that you would be here. But not only has God provided your life, he also supplies everything. The Apostle Paul preached in Acts 17, 28, that in him we live and move and have our being. This is the concept of what theologians call general grace. That all that it takes for humanity to live continues to be provided by God. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 45, that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Colossians 1.17, we read earlier, says that in Christ, that Christ, all things are held together by him. Now, lest there be any confusion about what that means, Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, physics says that atoms hold together because of the electric charges present in the atom with the negative charge of the electrons, the positive charge of the protons, and it creates an electromagnetic force. And I put it this way, that's what turns the lights on. But no one can answer two questions about this. Who turned the lights on in the first place and who's keeping them on? Who's doing that? Just like a light bulb and the electricity to run the light bulb must have a source and must have sustenance, so the atoms must have a source and must have a sustenance because atoms are holding together and because gravity continues working and because the earth stays in perfect orbit around the sun and because the earth is tilted perfectly so it won't fry us and it won't freeze us and because we have breathable air yes even the bakersfield and because the earth continues to grow food on and on and on everything is provided to you by god's gracious kind sovereignty Everything. Let me just give you one example of something that God has provided for you. God has provided for you human leadership, sometimes called government. Now, I know right now during this crisis, we're tempted to grumble about the government. And in the United States, it's legal and acceptable to voice concerns about the government. Now, let me ask you this. What if all of a sudden, every government office Every police officer, every judge, every jail, every prison suddenly vanished. What would we have? Well, we would have anarchy and our way of life would cease to exist very quickly. So why do we have human government? We have human government because sin exists and God has placed human government to slow the effects of sin. Romans 13.1 reminds us, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority, listen to this, except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
We take comfort from the fact that the rulers work at the behest of God according to his mysterious, his sovereign purposes. Lest you question their decisions, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. And because God controls human rulers, he uses them to accomplish his own purposes. That's just one example. So the first truth we ought to consider is that God has provided your life and supplies everything. I'll give you a second truth. God has planned your life and forgets nothing. God has planned your life and forgets nothing. Now, some might say that, well, yes, God is sovereign, but just over the big stuff, the big things. And he leaves the little things for us to decide. And on the surface, that sort of makes sense to us. It's hard for us to imagine that God cares or is involved in who wins a board game around your dining room table. And we would definitely say that human decisions we make are, in fact, real decisions. And yet, are they separated from? Are they outside of the sovereignty of God? No, they can't be. Otherwise, God isn't sovereign. Just how in control of your life is God? Well, he's in control of life, he's in control of death, and he's in control of what happens in between. The great and inspired prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2 makes this very clear. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Her point is very clear. If God has set the pillars of the earth and controls that, then why would he not be in control of the little pieces of clay that he's pinched off all over the world? The tiny dots of people. So yes, we make real decisions, but it is in the context of sovereignty. We're very familiar with Proverbs 16, verse 8. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So make all the plans you want, but God is going to be the one guiding that. Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. In other words, even if you roll dice to make a decision, if you rock, paper, scissors to make a decision, every decision is from the Lord, which, by the way, answers the question, Is God in control of the board game you're playing with your family? Yes, he is. And for the Christian, this is so comforting. This is so delightful because this means that God is going to help you. It doesn't mean he's going to rescue you from the consequences of unwise decisions. But you can rest assured that your unwise decision was part of God's sovereign plan. We'll cover that more tonight. As a matter of fact... Even your prayers are covered by sovereignty. Do you know that? Look back at Romans 8, just a couple of verses prior to our home base of Romans 8.28. Look at Romans 8.26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. God has planned your life. He's planned it. And this should remind us to not complain about it. In fact, Scripture takes us back to the clay metaphor. 
Isaiah 45, 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he wrote wisely in James 4.15 that we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The Apostle Paul said in Acts 18.21 when he was leaving Ephesus, he told the church, I will return to you if God wills. He wrote the Roman church in Romans 8.32, rather, that his hope was that by God's will I may come to you with joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I think for me and in our humanity, sometimes it seems that God has sort of let slide some of those times where you've suffered. Maybe he's forgotten the times that you've been swindled or lied to or cheated, forgotten all the times you've lost things in your life. But God never forgets. He didn't forget anything. The Lord Jesus Christ From his future throne in New Jerusalem, he looks back from this future place and he promises us in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. God told Israel through the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 1, and I'm paraphrasing, Have you seen anything like this locust plague that has eaten everything in the land? And then in chapter 2, God says that his judgment on Israel, the coming judgment And on the nations also who reject him will be like that swarm of locusts, destroying everything in its path. And yet God gives Israel a promise. Joel 2.25, he says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. This is an important word. I will restore. It literally means to pay back. The suffering which had been brought on him will be paid back. And in fact, that promise is given in its fulfillment in the very next few verses in Joel 2, beginning in verse 26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Can I put it this way? God keeps perfect records. He will restore all that you've lost. Maybe not in this life, but definitely in the life to come. God forgets nothing. Well, here's our truths about how the sovereignty of God interacts with your life. Truth number one, God has provided your life and supplies everything. Truth number two, God has planned your life and forgets nothing. And now truth number three, God has prepared your life and it's something. God has prepared your life and it's something. How has God prepared your life? Two ways. He is sovereign over your salvation and he's sovereign over your sanctification. He's sovereign over your salvation. Well, how? I'll give you a few ways. First of all, he chose Christ as Savior. He was in total control of the suffering of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Concerning the decision that Christ would die, 1 Peter 1.20 says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. 
God chose Christ as Savior. God also chose those who would be saved. Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Romans 9, beginning in verse 15, for He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. God regenerates every person that he's chosen as well. John 1.13, you were born again of the will of God, not of the will of man, not your will, not anybody else's will. It was God's will. 1 Peter 1.3, God caused us to be born again. James 1.18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So God chose Christ as Savior. He chose you to be saved and he regenerated you by his spirit. Now, to those who believe that salvation from sin is based in human free will, could I good-naturedly point out a few inconsistencies with that? Let me just give you a few. You've rightly used the phrase, God is in control. We agree on that. When you're speaking of trials and tribulations, and yet when you deny then that God is in control when it comes to salvation, you become inconsistent. Another inconsistency, total free will if it existed, would mean that 100% of the people would reject salvation. How do we know this? Well, Jesus said that. Jesus said in John 3.19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The free will view can't explain Ephesians 2, 1, that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The free will view can't explain 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The free will view can't explain 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the devil has, quote, blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Because the free will view assumes that blind people can see spiritually and overcome the devil solely on the power of their own reason. And, if I could poke just a little fun, even those who continue in the belief in total free will will have to admit that God had a hand in getting them to the point of belief God arranged to hear a certain preacher on a certain Sunday. God brought about a divine appointment with someone who shared the gospel. Even the free will proponent admits that God influenced their decision to be saved. So God is sovereign. Jesus said it very simply in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Greek word draws him means to drag him, to haul him. You weren't just wooed to God, you were brought to God. And he planned your life, he planned your salvation sovereignly. But not only was God sovereign over your salvation, he's sovereign over your sanctification, the process of making you more like Christ. Paul told the Philippian believers in Philippians 2.3 that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And how does this sanctification happen? Well, in large part, it happens through suffering. Peter said in 1 Peter 3.18, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Now, 
if is what's called a first-class condition in Greek. It means if is actually a fact. It's when you suffer, it is God's will. Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I suffered, that I might learn your statutes. I might learn more of my God. Job, chapters 1 and 2, Satan had to get God's permission to afflict Job. Genesis 50, Joseph, who was kidnapped and sold into slavery by his own brothers, now addresses them many years later. And he says in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Israel's rejection of Christ. This was all part of God's sovereign plan and strategy to win, listen, both Israel and Gentiles to Christ. Romans 11, beginning of verse 11. So I ask, did they, that is Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? This is all God's work. It's all His sovereign work. God prepared your life for salvation and for sanctification, and it is something. Why is it something? Because the end result of your salvation and sanctification, you ready for this? is that you have been fully prepared to dwell with God. You've been fully prepared. This is your future that is something. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And listen, this is not just Okay, now you can forget about the former pain. This is not some sort of divine amnesia. This is God having returned to you many times over blessings to make up for and to pay you back for your former pain. Every heartache, every trial, every time of suffering, every moment of agony is an investment in the first universe bank of heaven. And it will provide a return. How big of a return? Well, we see it right here in Romans 8. Here's how big of a return. Look in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Put it this way, you invest a penny of suffering and get a trillion dollars back. It's that level. But there is a catch. I told you that Romans 8.28 has a twist. It has a surprise. It has a bombshell. Go back to Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, even non-Christians quote Romans 8.28. They cite the idea, all things work together, or like the signs in our yards, everything will be all right. 
But the context of Romans 8.28 is not for everybody. The context of Romans 8.28 is a progression of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. It is for those who are called, who hear and respond to the gospel of Christ. It is for those who are justified. Verse 30, made right before God. Can I say this? For the non-Christian, everything will not be all right. All things will not work together for your good. Yes, they will work together for God's glory as he is glorified in your punishment for all time for your sin. But all things will not work together for your good. But instead, in the sovereignty of God, he is provided what the Bible calls hundreds of times grace. And he's made a way He's made a way of salvation. He has called you. He has invited you. And he's doing so even now to humble yourself and to repent of your sin so that you can know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those, that's you, who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 can be the best news you've ever heard if you will humble yourself to worship Christ. Well, we have some unfinished business. We left our group of birds perched on the handrail of an old dock on a lake, and they've been arguing about why the little bird who fell to the ground on the way has fallen and how the maker either was or wasn't involved in this. Well, finally, an older bird with some gray feathers, he piped up and he got everyone's attention. And he said, my friends... We must look to the words of the maker himself to answer that question, to the one who did make us. And he told them his name is Jesus. And he has three truths that you should know. And now if you'll allow me, I'll relay to you what the old bird might have said to the flock. He might have said the first truth is that God has provided your life and supplies everything And the maker, Jesus, said in Matthew 6, 26, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? The maker, Jesus, said similarly on a different occasion in Luke 12, 24, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? The lesson is the sovereignty of God is to be safely encapsulated within the bounds of his perfect plan. And if I could guess that the old bird would give a second truth, the second truth is God has planned your life and forgets nothing. God has planned your life and forgets nothing. The maker, Jesus, in Matthew ten twenty nine said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. A little sparrow was the the cheapest meat source that the poor family could buy. You could get two for a penny or five for two pennies. They're small. They're seemingly insignificant. And yet God is tracking them. Listen, the maker, Jesus said in Luke 12, 6 and 7, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. 
Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Listen, God is keeping accounts. He's planned the life of even every bird and knows every time one falls. Jesus is saying that God's records are so meticulous that he even numbers the hairs on your head. And if I could guess that the bird, the old bird would give a third truth, God has prepared your life and it's something. The maker, Jesus, said in Matthew 10, 29, that not one bird falls to the ground apart from your father. Now, does that just mean that he passively sees that there's another bird going down and that somehow we're supposed to find comfort in the fact that the bird didn't die alone? No, it must mean more than that. Luke 12, 6 says that not one of them is forgotten He says also, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Why would God number the hairs of your head? You ready for this? So you can get them back. It's for the purposes of restoration. So why would God keep track of even the sparrows who fall? God is keeping accounts. And this is not knowledge without reason. This is not knowledge for the sake of trivia. This is knowledge with a purpose. Luke 12, 6 and 7, are not five sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them is forgotten by God. Listen, forgotten is a word that means not one of them is neglected. Not one of them is overlooked by God. It's much more than just keeping an account for no reason. It means there's a purpose to his account. If God is keeping track just for the sake of knowing how many sparrows there used to be, that has no purpose. Consider this. Romans 8, beginning in verse 20, says that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Let me translate that. In other words, it wasn't creation's fault that sin entered the world and caused death. When the sparrow falls, it's not because of its sin. It's because of mankind's sin. And thus, creation waits for the redemption of mankind because when mankind is fully redeemed, then creation itself will be redeemed. And of course, we'll see this in the making of a new heaven and a new earth. So could it be? Could it be that God is counting even his fallen sparrows who were not responsible for sin so that he might recreate them, not resurrect them? We would assert that's a privilege reserved for those made in the image of God, humanity. But could it be that even the fallen sparrow will be recreated? Why else would he be counting them? Now, obviously, the question that all of your children are about to ask you is, does that mean that Fido and Spot and Rover are going to be recreated and you'll be reunited with them? I can't say that for certain, but would it surprise you? It wouldn't surprise me. God is the God of restoration. And if God is counting sparrows as they fall for a reason which only he certainly knows, Jesus himself said, how much more value are you than the birds? So let me ask you a question. What are you going to do with the sovereignty of God? 
Will you allow this truth to help you rest in the God who truly is almighty? Will you allow this truth to humble you, to give God glory for all that he does, not just everything you like, not just everything you agree with? And will you bow before a God who does not obligate himself to explain his actions to you, but who will work all things together for good? For those who are called according to his purpose. Will you receive anything from the hand of God, no matter how hard, no matter how difficult, no matter how mysterious, no matter how painful, and yet smile and remember, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. You might ask, but what about when we can't see the sovereignty of God at work? When we don't understand what's happening? What about when God seems absent, invisible, silent? Well, this is when the discussion of the sovereignty of God leads us to the providence of God. The providence of God is God's sovereignty at work. And if you want to understand the providence of God, tune in tonight at 6.30 p.m. for part two of Our Big God. And we will look at providence, God's sovereignty at work. Well, let's spend a moment in prayer together. Our Father, we come to you now so thankful and so grateful that when we say God is in control, that is not just a trite saying. That's not just a quote from the Internet. It is the deepest and the most profound of all theological truths that God is in control The the very atoms of our universe are held together by your power. Every sparrow that falls is known by you, is accounted for by you. Every trial, every difficulty, every mysterious occurrence in our lives is accounted for. It's tracked so that you might restore all things. And I pray for one today who is doubting you and who is overcome by worry, overwhelmed by anxiety. And I pray for that man or woman to rest in the fact that for those who are called by God into salvation, all things work together for good. And I would pray for one who is uncertain if he has come to faith in Christ. Let this be the day under your sovereign plan that you would call him to salvation. Let this be the day, I pray. We honor you, we exalt you, we glorify you, for you and you alone are sovereign. Amen.